Hey, Jimmy. 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 Eh, where is he? Who else could I use? Good morning, Jose. Happy Sunday. Hey, Bobby. You're just the guy I want to see. Oh, yeah? What for? Well, I want to do a little demonstration for all my church friends about what faith is like. Faith, huh? What were you thinking of doing? Hey, I saw this one time and I wanted to try it out. Turn around. I said turn around. Um, okay, but why? Don't ask why, just do it. I've got a bad feeling about this. Okay, perfect. Now, just fall backward. But I'll hit the floor. It'll hurt. No, it won't. I'm gonna catch you. Really? You promise? Sure, Bobby. Don't you trust me? Well, not exactly. <laughs> Come on, Bobby. Have I ever let you down? There was that one time when you said you'd help me rake Grandpa Gray's leaves, and you never showed up. Hey, it's not my fault that Jimmy wanted to go to the ice cream store. And then there was a time when you said you'd pick me up at the park and give me a ride home on your bike, and you never showed up. Exercise is good for you. And it isn't that far to walk. In the rain. And then there was the time that... Okay, okay. I get the point. But this time, I mean it. I will really catch you if you just trust me and fall backwards. I know I might regret this, but I guess I should give you another chance. Here goes nothing. Hey, Jose! Oh, hi, Kimmy. Ah! I can't talk right now. Jose! Whoops. You said you'd catch me. Sorry. What happened? Sorry, Kimmy started talking to me and I got distracted. It wasn't my fault. What's going on here? Well, we're just doing a demonstration of what faith looks like. Bobby falling down and hitting his head? Well, he wasn't supposed to hit his head. Jose said he would catch me. And you believed him? You really do have a lot of faith. Well, I wanted to show the kids in church about what it means to trust God. Well, I'm pretty sure you showed them what God doesn't do. My head hurts. Let's go find an ice pack, Bobby. Great. Now I've got to find someone else who would trust me enough to try this again. Hey, I wonder if Grace is around here somewhere. Hey, Grace! Have you ever trusted someone and then later regretted it? Yeah. Maybe you've uh, tried what Jose and Bobby just tried to do. Of course, that's kind of just a silly illustration. But in reality, aren't there times when you've relied on someone and then found out that they were completely untrustworthy? As children, we rely on our parents and what they tell us. But then we come to realize that they don't always keep their word. As husbands and wives, we, we, we give ourselves to our spouse expecting uh, that they won't let us down. And then they do. As citizens, 
We vote for political candidates who make campaign promises only to do the opposite of what they promised once they actually get in office. As Christians, we join the church expecting its members to be loving and kind, to forgive us when we err and to gently guide us back in the path of righteousness. But then we find out that it doesn't always work that way, that people can be really judgmental and harsh. And if you think about it, there's a lot of places in our lives where we decide to trust someone and they completely let us down. After a while, it's hard not to become cynical, isn't it? In fact, we just sort of expect people to disappoint us. And if we're really honest, I think sometimes, I think sometimes we even expect God to drop the ball. I know we wouldn't say that because we all know better. And we wouldn't say it because we would never voice something like that out loud. But I think sometimes in our heart of hearts, we really expect that God isn't going to come through the way he says he will, sometimes. We expect that at some point he's going to disappoint us. Everybody else has. So at some point, we just kind of figure that's going to happen. Then again, maybe I'm the only one that feels that way. I don't know. But we come to a passage of Scripture, like the one we're going to look at today, which is Psalm 25. We're continuing our study through the book of Psalms. We come to Psalm 25, and we're forced to confront this idea head on. And so I'd like you to think about this because Psalm 25 really brings this issue to the forefront. It makes us ask what sort of God we're trusting in and what exactly is this life of faith really all about. Now, this psalm is an interesting one. One of its most fascinating aspects, I think, is completely obscured by its translation into English. Okay? So we all need to go out and learn Hebrew so we can read this in Hebrew, right, and appreciate the original content. No. Okay. Um, this psalm is one of a handful of acrostic poems in the Psalter. What I mean by that is that every other line of this psalm starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's not really clear if there's any greater significance to this format other than the creativity of David. Some people suggest that um, you know, the acrostic means to say that the psalm covers the whole life of faith, you know, from A to Z, so to speak. Others think it was a memory tool, maybe used to help children remember the alphabet right, by, by teaching them a psalm, or maybe the other way, helping them to remember the psalm because it followed the alphabet. We don't really know, and I would say it's just as likely that this psalm is just David expressing his artistic creativity by writing a song in this format. And it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't come through in English at all. You can't read it and tell that, okay? Uh, and so we wouldn't know if we, if we didn't have it in Hebrew to look at. And I'm no Hebrew scholar, so I'm, don't ask me to, you know, prove it to you. But um, it really is a beautiful way to write a poem. 
and it demonstrates the, the incredible skill and the beauty that David uh, instilled in his poetry. But the thing is, because he structured it that way, because he followed that acrostic format, it means that Psalm 25 doesn't really follow a, a, um, a thematic structure very well. You know, most of the Psalms, even though they're poetry, follow some sort of an outline, a basic concept that drives them. And this Psalm doesn't really do that because it's, it's, just, it's just much more difficult to write it that way. But I would say this, there are several different themes that run through this psalm. Themes including God's reliability, His wisdom, His guidance, His mercy, His goodness, His majesty, and His great love for sinners. If you wanted to summarize Psalm 25 up, I think the best way for us to say it in a sentence would be this, God is worthy of your complete trust. I think that's really the, 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 the primary, most foundational point of Psalm 25 that David is trying to get across to us here. God is worthy of your complete trust. Now, we're not really going to flesh that out completely today. Right? That particular topic will kind of be left for next week, to be honest, at least to, to completely flush this out. And the reason for that is that there's a lot of different truths and topics in this psalm, and I would like to do justice to them. And so I'm not going to try to do all of it in one uh, message. So I'm going to try to cover it in two messages and divide the psalm into two parts. And the two parts I'm going to divide, I'm going to say this, that the first part the part we're going to deal with today deals primarily with what I call the nature of faith. Okay. And the second part, which is from verse 8 all the way to the end of the psalm, really deals with the object of faith. But, but understand and, and that this is a very, very, very general sort of outline. I just had to put something down on paper for us to work with, okay? Because really the themes of the nature of faith and what faith is like and how faith works it really runs the whole psalm. And the object of faith, who we're trusting in and what we're trusting in, that really runs the whole psalm too. So it doesn't, these aren't really hard and fast categories, okay? So I just want to, to, to kind of lay that out before you as we get going here so you don't, uh, so I don't confuse you. And so this morning I'd like to just look at the first seven verses as we consider what David teaches here about the life of faith. And so I'm going to put them up on the screen. We can read them together uh, in unison. Let's read Psalm 25, 1 through 7. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness' sake, O Lord. The first thing that I'd like for you to notice here, or maybe I actually I should start with a question here. 
What does genuine faith look like? What does genuine faith in God look like? I think the first verse, the first verse here shows us as David pleads with the Lord. David pleads with God to come through for him in, in a very difficult and desperate time. He says it very, very in verse 1, it's very fascinating. He says this, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Now, I find that fascinating in, in part because it's very, very similar to what David wrote in Psalm 24 and verse 4. So if you're there in your Bible, you can just glance over at Psalm 24 and verse 4. There, he's describing the one who may stand in the Lord's holy place. Remember, he was answering that question, and he says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. This is, this is in, in Psalm 24, he uses this idea in a negative way. Someone who lifts up his soul to an idol. But here, David starts off this psalm saying, Lord, I lift up my soul to you. Interesting that he would use the same phrase. Directed in two very different ways, right? In Psalm 24, the man who is faithful is one who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. But here in Psalm 25, we see the psalmist himself saying, Lord, I lift up my soul to you. I think David here is using this as an analogy of faith. Okay. The man who has put his trust in an idol can't worship the Lord. Just think about that. The man who's put his trust in an idol can't worship the Lord because he's put his faith in an idol. That's the meaning of Psalm 24, verse 4. But you know, in Psalm 25, we see this principle, and I think what we see here is the life of faith in God. That's the theme here. David saying, listen, Lord, it's unto you. I lift my soul up to you. That's what this is all about. And all of Psalm 25 then is basically a, a, an explanation, an illustration, fleshing out of that idea. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And so I want you to notice, because I think he uses it three different ways here, that, that the first uh, here is that lifting up our souls or our hearts, if you will, to God seems to be an analogy for trusting God alone, okay? for worshiping Him in spirit and truth. It's interesting. I think that's how it's used in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 40 and 41, where, the, where, where Jeremiah says this, Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. Jeremiah wrote these verses to people who had suffered greatly for their sins. And he's pleading with them to cast themselves into God's hands and trust Him completely. And so that's what we see here. This idea of lifting up my soul. I think what David is saying here first and foremost is the life of faith is a life of desperate trust. A life of desperate trust. He says that there in verse 2, Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. This is him 
saying, I lift up my soul to you, so here's what it means. Lord, I'm trusting in you. I'm desperately clinging to you. He says, don't let me be ashamed. Don't let my enemies win. You see, to lift up your soul to the Lord means to rely completely on Him and abandon all other hope. That's the part that we don't always get. You see, we talk about believing in Jesus and and, and trusting in the Lord, but we have to abandon all other hope. Okay. We have to let go of everything else that we might hope in, everything else that we might trust in, everything else that we might think is worthy of, of, of our justification, security, help. All of those things, we've got to let go of them if we're going to live the life of faith. We have to let go of all the things we're holding on to for security and for hope. David's trust in the Lord, the way that he describes it here, his trust in the Lord is such that if God doesn't come through for him, he is going to be put to shame in front of his enemies. His enemies are watching. And he says, Lord, I'm trusting in you. Do not let me down because my enemies are watching and I will be put to shame. Now understand something here. Uh, When he says, uh, when he used that word ashamed there in verse 2, see, we think of the word ashamed and we immediately think of being embarrassed, right? I don't want to be embarrassed. God, don't embarrass me, you know? And of course... You know, when you're kids and uh, you're, especially teenagers, you're really, really worried about, you know, mom and dad embarrassing you, you know. At a certain point, it's no longer okay to get, you know, hugs and kisses and, and you know, expressions of, of love because, oh, you know, such an embarrassment. Okay? That's not what he's talking about here at all. We, we think of that when we use the word ashamed, but that's not what he's talking about. What he's saying here, this word ashamed has the idea of disappointment. God, if you don't come through for me, I'm trusting in you. If you don't come through, I am going to be completely let down here. I'm going to be completely disappointed. I'm going to find out that you're not really reliable. And I thought you were. See? I was counting on you and you let me down. That's what David is saying here. This is what it means to trust the Lord. It means to put ourselves in such a position of dependency on Him that if He doesn't come through, wow. You know, we're going to reach out our hand to grab hold of that railing to steady ourselves and it's going to give way and we're going to fall. That's the picture that we need to have here in mind of what David is talking about This idea of faith. I lift my soul up to you. God, I'm trusting in you. I'm so depending on you. If you don't hold me up, I'm falling. And there's nothing going to catch me. If you don't come through for me, I am going to be completely disappointed because I have nowhere else to turn. I have no other hope. That's what... David is talking about here, genuine faith in the Lord. It's resting wholly on Him. Putting all of your weight on Him, so to speak. Right, So that if He fails to hold you up, you're going to fall. It means taking a risk. See, trusting the Lord means taking a risk. 
I remember, I, I thought about this this week, and I wasn't sure if I was going to share it or not, but I remember um, a number of years ago, we were, when we first moved to New Mexico, um, and we had kind of a, I don't know, I don't know if we want to call it a patio or something in our backyard. At the back, it was at the back end of the yard. It wasn't attached to the house. And we had like a little, you know, some like chairs and a little table back there and stuff, you know. And we could sit out there in the evenings and, and relax. And it was a really nice place. And, um, you know, I remember one afternoon just being out there in the sun, just laying out there in the sun. And, and, uh, and the chair, I had laid the chair down. It was one of these where the back could, the back could be adjustable, you know. And I had laid the back down. And I had laid, and I laid on it, okay? I was laying on my, on, my, on my stomach. I was laying on the chair. My wife was out there too, and we're just laying out there in the sun. And, of course, the sun in New Mexico is really bright and hot and everything. And so after a little while, I thought I better, you know, turn so I don't, like, you know, char here and get all burned up on one side, you know? And so I went to, um, I went to, to, to lift myself up, okay, and to kind of move. And as I did, I pushed down on the chair, and the chair broke. Well, I'm not a little guy, so um, you can imagine the chair probably wasn't designed for that kind of stress. And, uh, yeah, not many are, you right. And um, so the chair, the back of the chair gave way. Okay. Well, of course, when it did, listen, I, I was, there was nothing to catch me. Well, except for the table that was right there, which caught my face. That was the only thing to catch me. But other than that, okay, there was nothing to catch me. But see, that's the idea here. We're leaning on the Lord. We're so depending on Him. Everything, our whole weight is on Him. If He fails, we're going to be completely disappointed. We're going to fall. Okay. That's the picture of faith here. Genuine faith. It's a risky thing. This is why I hate it, by the way. I hate it when people use this argument when they're trying to witness to somebody about Christ. And they say, oh, if you trust Christ and you're wrong, you haven't lost anything. But if you reject Christ and you're wrong, you've lost everything, you go to hell. They make it sound like it's not risky at all. But can I tell you this? If that's all your faith is, I'm not sure your faith is saving faith this morning. Because to trust in the Lord means I put everything at risk. Genuine faith means putting everything at risk. It means putting your life, your reputation, even your eternal destiny at risk. Okay. See, if the Lord proves unreliable, you've lost everything. Because okay. your whole life, everything you believe, everything you say, everything you do is focused on Him and serving and pleasing Him. It's a risk. If you're not taking a risk, then you don't really have that kind of faith. People say, well, what could it hurt? Just trust Jesus and, you know, what could it hurt? Well, I'll tell you what it could hurt. We're talking about your eternal destiny here. We're talking about all of eternity here. That's something to risk. Okay. Genuine faith means putting everything at risk. I think that's exactly what David is getting at here. He's basically saying, Lord, I'm counting on you. I've got nowhere else to turn, so please don't fail me. Well, there's something else that we need to understand about, about the nature of faith because David says this even while he is surrounded by enemies who are watching him. And so understand this. There's another principle here about faith. Genuine faith is public, not private. 
David's enemies were there. They're watching, waiting for him to fall. They aren't men of faith. But they know what David believes. They know that David believes God will help him. Of course, they think that's just superstitious nonsense, and so they turn on David. These are his enemies. He, he describes them here, right? These are those who deal treacherously without cause. These are people who have turned against David for no reason other than the fact that they do not believe his God is truly God. David is saying, Lord, I've laid it all out there. It's not a secret that I'm depending on you. It's not a secret that I'm trusting in you. And so, Lord, I'm... In fact, I get the impression that as David prays this psalm, he's within earshot of these people. They can hear him pray. It's as if they're standing around watching and listening to him, and David is praying, Lord, they're right here. Lord, they're listening right here, and if, if you don't do something, they're going to know that you're not true. God, you've got to do something. You've got to come through. You've got to be faithful, because they are here and they're watching me, and they know that I profess faith in you. You see, if you don't answer my prayer, Lord, then my enemies will be proven right. Okay. David's faith is public. He's not hiding this. His enemies know it. Guess what? They're using it against him. Okay. But in spite of that, David is praying, God, don't fail me. God, I am trusting in you. See, Genuine faith is public. It's not private. That's why, that's why we declare our faith publicly. In the church, we do that through believer baptism. That's why we, that's why we do that. That's why we have that particular ordinance in our church. And when someone trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord and they, and they receive forgiveness of sins and new life in Him, then they get up in front of everybody and they allow themselves to be immersed in water, symbolizing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Why do we do that? Because it raises the stakes. See? It raises the stakes. It tells the world that you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. So that if he doesn't come through and if he doesn't save you, if he doesn't cleanse you, if he doesn't forgive your sins and make you righteous, then you, just like the psalmist, will be completely and totally put to shame. See, you, this, is where we, uh, this is where we lose it in our society because we've lost the stigma of being Christians. It's too easy. And someone says, well, I'm a Christian. Oh, that's nice. That's wonderful. Good for you. I have faith too. Yay. You know, see, identifying with Christ, putting it out there, saying, I am a believer. Again, you're putting everything at risk. 
That's what we're doing. We're saying, listen, my life, my reputation, my, my work ethic, my entertainment, my, uh, my, my eternal destiny, everything is in God's hands. And then I get up here in front of everybody and I declare that in a very vivid and powerful way. And I proclaim as loudly as possible with the full voice of the church behind me, I am trusting in Christ. And if he fails, if he doesn't come through, guess how disappointed, how devastated you're going to be. See, that's real faith. This is why the Apostle Paul said it. If Christ doesn't come through, guess what? Then we are of all men most pathetic. That's what we are. If Christ isn't who he says he is. If he doesn't do what he says he'll do. See, we're putting it on the line. That's what it means to be a Christian. We are desperately trusting in the Lord. That's a life of faith. Everything hangs on Him. Everything. We sang the hymn, is it Rock of Ages, right? Where we sang that second verse where the, where the songwriter, Augustus Toplady, wrote there, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's the picture here. Do you have faith in the Lord? Oh, I don't mean do you say, oh yeah, I believe Jesus died and rose from the dead. I read the Bible, I went to Sunday school, check it off. No, I mean, are you desperately clinging to the cross? Because if that fails, then everything fails and everything in your life is a complete and total loss. That's the life of faith. That's only the first part, by the way. Because I think he's using that same phrase, I lift up my soul to you, Lord. He uses that phrase in another way. Okay. There's another analogy here, if you will. It's the analogy of for appealing to God for wisdom and guidance. Okay. You can see it this way also in Psalm 143 in verse 8, where the psalmist writes, Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. For in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk. For I lift my soul up to you. See, lifting our soul to Him means that we are depending on Him for wisdom and guidance. I think that's what David is saying in verses 4 and 5. And I call it this. I say this, the life of faith is a life directed by God. Notice what he says there in verse 4. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. These are the things he asks for, right? Show me. Teach me. Lead me. He wants to receive wisdom and direction from the Lord. This is an act of faith. See? It's, it's an act of faith to go to God in prayer and say, Lord, show me what you want me to do. Lord, teach me your ways. Lord, lead me in your paths. That's an act of faith. That's what, that's what people of faith do. 
We go to the Lord and we say, Lord, teach me what you want me to do. Show me your ways. Guide me. We trust that God will impart wisdom to those who follow him. What this means then is the life of faith is characterized by patiently waiting on the Lord for guidance. And isn't that really what we want? Don't we all want guidance? Don't you want to know God's will for your life? Don't you wish, don't you wish that, that, that he would drop, you know, in your mailbox a to-do list every day? Wouldn't that be great? You know, God says, here, this is what I have for you today. Here's my list. Get to it. Right? Well, I tell you what, just go into any Christian bookstore and browse the shelves and you're likely to find dozens of books about finding God's will for your life. This is a subject of great concern for us. And, and frankly, can I say this? That, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. We want to know God's will. That's good. The psalmist says, Lord, I want to know your will. Lead me in your path. Show me your ways. Teach me. But take a closer look at what he's actually asking God for here. Okay, Look there at verse 4. Show me your what? Your what? All right, say it together. Show me your... Okay, good, good, good. Okay, next. Teach me your... And third, lead me in your truth. Okay? This is significant. Show me your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. What is the key to finding God's will? It's not, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not learning to listen for the still, small voice of the Spirit inside you. It's not. It's not figuring out the meaning of your dreams. It's not deciphering the inner impressions that you feel on a daily basis. Theologian Derek Kidner said it this way, this approach, talking here about what the psalmist is asking in verses 4 and 5, this approach to divine guidance is personal and mature. Unlike the basically pagan search for irrational pointers and omens. That's a pretty strong statement. Trying to parse our inner impressions or looking for signs from God are nothing more than paganism or spiritual immaturity. Can I submit to you this morning that you ought to learn to run from anyone who teaches those things. Run. Not walk. Run. Get away from them. Those are not true teachers of the God that the psalmist is following here. They're not. How do I know that? How can I say so dogmatically that anyone who teaches you to follow your inner impressions or to look for signs from God is not teaching the truth? Well, here's why. Because genuine faith is rooted in God's Word. 
Genuine faith is rooted in God's word, and that's exactly what David is saying here. How are you going to learn God's ways? How are you going to learn his paths? How are you going to learn his truth? Guess what? You're going to have to study his word. David says, Lord, show me your ways. Lord, teach me your paths. Lord, lead me in your truth. Well, guess what? You're going to have to study the Word of God if you want to know His ways, His paths, and His truth. There's no substitute. I know, we all wish there was a shortcut, a pill we could take, a procedure we could have done, something, you know. There's got to be something, right? There's got to be a faster way than a lifetime of studying God's Word. Vito, is there a faster way? Any substitute for spending your life studying the Word of God? Do you regret it? All the years you've spent? No. I only ask Vito because he's a couple years older than me. And uh, just, just a couple. Okay. He's still got a ways to go yet. He's still learning and growing. Okay. But this is the life of faith. Life of faith is a life that is directed by God. And how is it directed by God? It's directed by God through His Word. We must study and know the Word of God. This is a continual pursuit. If you want to know what God wants for you, you've got to know His Word. You can't pray, Lord, show me your ways, and then close this book. And go read some self-help nonsense. Or decide to sit down and parse my inner impression. Okay. Sorry, I'm mocking that a little bit, but, but please understand me. This is a dangerous thing. Okay. Christian, you need to have your book open. You need to be studying it. You need to be reading it. You need to be meditating on it. You need to be learning it because God's ways, His paths, His truth can only be understood through His Word. I do think it's interesting there in verse 5 that he uses the phrase, God of my salvation. Again, there's another connection here to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 in verse 5, He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. I know it's only been a week, but if you remember, it's hard to remember back that far. When I talked about that verse, we indicated that, that 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 phrase emphasizes the fact that our salvation comes from the Lord, okay. not from us. See, in Psalm 24, he was saying, listen, the man who humbles himself and seeks after God like Jacob, he's the one who receives righteousness from the Lord, blessing from the God of his salvation. God is the God of our salvation. He's the one that gives salvation, gives grace, gives righteousness. Well, guess what? He's also the one that gives wisdom and direction. That's what Psalm 25 is telling us. The God of my salvation. Lord, show me, teach me, lead me. Why? Because you're the God of my salvation. I know you. You see, he's talking here about this relationship, the life of faith, which is a relationship with the all-knowing Lord of heaven. And we can expect him to direct our paths. He's the God of our salvation. He's already given us His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. 
Why would he hold back wisdom and direction for our daily life? So we come to his word, believing, believing that he loves us, believing that he has included all of his wisdom and guidance in the pages of Scripture. And guess what? You will not be disappointed. There is more than enough on your to-do list if you crack this book in the morning. (laughs) You'll never run out. You'll never run out. Um, just, uh, I think it was just last week. Um, that had been last Sunday, even. I can't remember. Uh, Jerry Bridges passed away. Faithful man of God, teacher of the Bible. He wrote a number of books, uh, one of which, The Pursuit of Holiness. And uh, our men's Bible study studied that a couple years ago. Man who is faithful. Man who loved the Lord. He spent his life studying the Word of God, and I can tell you he was not disappointed. He went to be with the Lord. His pursuit of holiness ended. And he came to see the Lord face to face. That's what we seek. And so I say, follow the Lord, follow His teaching, follow His truth, and you will not be disappointed. It will carry you through all the way until you're with Him. As one more thing, one more time I want to go back to that phrase in verse 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Because there's a third analogy here that David uses, and it's that of trusting God and forgiveness. That's how the phrase is used in Psalm 86. Verses 4 and 5, he says, Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant mercy to all those who call upon you. So the life of faith is a life forgiven by God. That's what David says here, verse 6. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Three times in these two verses David uses the word remember. It's an interesting word to use when you're praying to God. Do you ever ask God to remember something? Or ever ask God to not remember something? That's what David's doing here. It seems kind of strange because we know that God doesn't forget, right? Not really, not like we do. You know, we lose track of things. I can't remember, you know, who the president is, what day it is. Can't remember where our keys are, where the remote control for the TV got to. All sorts of things we can't remember, right? God never has that problem. He does never forget something in that way. And yet still, David says, Lord, remember. What David is doing here is he's praying that God would deal with him on the basis of his compassion and mercy rather than on the basis of his sins. God, 
choose to remember this. God, choose not to remember that. That's how we ought to pray. <laughs> A couple things we need to consider here. First of all, that genuine faith believes what God says about my sin. Genuine faith believes what God says about my sin. Notice that David doesn't try to ignore it. He doesn't whitewash it. He doesn't pretend it's no big deal. There in verse 7, Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. There's a saying that you probably have heard, although I think we all know it's not really true. Uh, but the saying is, time heals all wounds. Right? And we know that's not really true. Because some hurts just don't ever go away, do they? But, we have this thing in our minds sometimes that, that time kind of diminishes all sins, you know? Enough time passes and, well, it's just not that big of a deal anymore. I think sometimes we think of it that way. We think that time heals all sins, but David understands it's not true. He, he calls them here sins of his youth. But David understands that whether the sins were committed yesterday or 30 years ago, it makes no difference. Either way, he is guilty. And either way, if God holds him accountable for those sins, he will not stand. He knows that. And so he pleads with God, do not remember the sins. They may be 30, 40, 50 years old. God, please do not remember those sins. He also calls them transgressions. The word transgressions means rebellion. These are acts of rebellion. Sin is a big deal with God. And it ought to be a big deal to you and it ought to be a big deal to me. Sin doesn't age well. You know, some things age well. Sin doesn't. It doesn't fade with time. Our memories of it might but we don't receive forgiveness just because time has passed and it's no longer in the forefront of our thinking. We don't receive forgiveness by ignoring our sin or pretending it's not that bad. But what's the solution then? If we're in rebellion against the Lord, David shows us that too. See, he's, he's real about his sin. He understands what his sin is and he doesn't try to pretend it's something else. He believes what God says. His sin is rebellion. It's transgression. It is corrupt and it is just as corrupt now as it was when he was a, when he was a young man. Nothing has changed. But there's something else that genuine faith believes and it's this, that genuine faith believes what God says about his love. That's exactly what David is focused on in verse 6. Remember, he says, listen, Lord, please don't remember my sins. Don't look at me and think about my sins. The ones that I committed years ago, don't look at those. Don't look at any of my sins and my rebellion. Lord, please don't look at those things. But Lord, instead, look at these things. And what does he point him to? Your tender mercies. Right? Your loving kindnesses. Uh, tender mercies there refers to compassion. It's the same word, by the way, that's used to describe a mother's womb. Okay, And, and, the, and the connection is this, that, that, that in the same way that a mother's womb cherishes and protects the child within it, okay, that's what this word tender mercies is. Lord, he's saying, 
I'm a sinner. But God, please don't relate to me on the basis of my sin. Instead, relate to me on the basis of your gentle love. The same tenderness that a mother feels for her newborn child. Lord, I want that feeling from you. Lord, you have a tender love. That's what David pleads for. He also pleads for loving kindnesses. This word appears in a lot of different forms in our Bibles, but it's the same word in Hebrew. It's the word chesed. We've talked about it before. It's the Lord's covenant love for his people. This is the word that describes how God feels toward the people with whom he has made promise, with whom he has made an agreement, a covenant. See, the first appeal to his tender mercies is an emotional one, right? Lord, I want to appeal to how you feel toward me. Just like a mother feels that, that stirring of love for her child, God, that's how I want you to feel toward me. The second is an appeal to God's faithfulness and to his justice to always keep his word. What David is saying is this, God, don't forget you promised to forgive your people. You promised to forgive your people. And notice he says here, there in in the end of verse 6, that these traits have been with the Lord from of old. From of old. It means they are enduring attributes. This is how God always acts toward his people, and it's how he has always acted toward his people. His tender, gentle, mothery love. And his faithfulness to do what he has promised. These two things have always been true of how God operates toward his people. In, this has been since the very beginning. When sin first entered the world, the Lord has forgiven his people on the basis of his tender love and his commitment to keep his word. Let me ask you a question. Did God forgive Jacob, the trickster, when he clung to the Lord after wrestling with him all night, helpless and desperate for a blessing? Did God forgive him? Yes. It's okay for you to say that. Yes, God did forgive him. Did God forgive Moses, the murderer, when he humbled himself beside the burning bush on the backside of the desert? Yes. Did God forgive David, the adulterer and murderer, when he confessed his sin and prayed for mercy? Did God forgive Saul, the persecutor of Christians, on the road to Damascus, when he bowed his head and said, Lord, what will you have me to do? Yes. One more question. Will God forgive you? Will God forgive you if you admit your sins and beg forgiveness? Yes. Yes. Because the same compassion and mercy which God showed to the saints of the past, He will show to you. If you believe His word and commit yourself to the Lord who alone is righteous. To understand this, more than anything, Psalm 25 is about the trustworthiness of God. Can you lean on Him and know that He'll hold you up? Can you trust the wisdom and guidance of his word? Can you be confident in the promise of his forgiveness? Yes to all three. 
So the final question I have for you this morning is this. Will you trust in the Lord as your companion, your guide, and your friend today? Let's close with prayer.